nice to be back with you this morning. Uh, I wish we were under happier circumstances, but it's, uh, it's Pastor Bob's on a cruise, uh, so it's great. Um, so, well, anyways, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4, please. Mark chapter 4, we'll start with verse 1, and we'll read first the 20, 20, I think the 20, anyways. This is the parable of the sower. I'm getting a lot of feedback down here, so, yeah. Um, So, let's begin. I I gotta change my version here. Okay, Mark 4, parable of the sower, verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat uh, in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, saying, saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up and because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, and it, scorched, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and they yield no crop. Other seed fell into the good soil, and as it grew up, it increased and yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parable. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while... Seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might turn, return and become, be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown, and they hear, and immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has not been sown in them which has been sown in them. And a similar way, these are the ones whom, whom the seed um, is sown on rocky places, so that when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And, when they ha- and they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when afflictions or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed is sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, Uh, But the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Well, I'm sure you all know this saying, to miss the forest for the trees. Pretty common. Um, that is when, if we were in the middle of a forest uh, and we were surrounded by tall trees and t- that were towering over our heads, 
We can't tell how large or expansive the forest is. We can't, we need a, we can't tell um, if it's thousands of acres or square miles or anything because all we can see is that which is around us. And of course, that's how you get lost in the forest, right? Isn't that right? <laughs> so uh, we need a new vantage point that allows us to see how many uh, acres or square miles are taken up by the forest. Or to put it more simply, uh, we could say that we're so caught up in the details that we miss the bigger picture. Now, when it comes to reading the Gospels, it's easy to concentrate on each story that Jesus tells or uh, participates in, thinking that uh, we have somewhat of a cut-and-paste uh, document where there's several individual accounts kind of strung together as if they were a, a string of pearls. They're all good, uh, but we seem to we, we read each story as kind of a self-contained unit, and we're not asking the bigger picture, or we're not seeing the bigger picture. Um, all the stories about Jesus in these Gospels are truth, and they're all excellent, and, um, but we're not seeing how they relate to the larger story that the Gospel uh, narrative contains. And so that's unfortunate because the Gospels are these well-developed narratives that tell the story of Jesus and his ministry. All the stories we find in the Gospel are woven together into larger sections to reveal who Jesus is and why the gospel is such good news. So one of the principles of interpretation, which I taught with classes on interpretation, and when we come to the gospels, one of the questions we ask is, why does the author arrange the different stories of Jesus in the order in which he has it? Okay, so that's kind of like, is there, any, is there any connection between these different stories? So that's kind of like, let's take three steps back, get a, a, a larger point of view, and see what we can find in terms of how the gospel writers string things together. Um, so, so this is why, this is, and this is how the, the gospel writers uh, uh, reveal the narrative about Jesus. So, he put, um, so in order to have... Uh, so you might say, as you're reading the stories, well, some things are put together because of the chronology. In other words, uh, the birth of Jesus and uh, has to be at the beginning of the gospel because the, the gospel is about Jesus and this is his birth. So Matthew, Mark, tell it, or Matthew and Luke give us that. Uh, it's what happens first. And then we can say, well, the cross and the resurrection have to be towards the end because that's the climax of the story. That's where the narrative is going all the time. If we get there... Um, and so it's, it's just something logical. There's this chronological sequence. But what about the rest of the stories we find in the Gospels? The Gospel writers seem to take a lot of liberty in arranging the same stories in different ways, in different manners. I won't take time to display that, but you've all read the three Gospels, the first three Gospels, which are called the Synoptics, and they say, well, uh, this happened in this this part of the gospel, the first part of the gospel in Mark, but later in Luke, and uh, doesn't even appear in John, and that type of thing. So, uh, <coughs> so there is a what are what's going on? Well, they take the liberty to do that because they want to tell the story of Jesus, but they want to tell the story of Jesus giving particular emphasis to who he is and what he's done and what he's accomplished for us. Uh, they it's like we have a diamond. Uh, the the gospel is this diamond with many facets, right? It's easy. You change the angle and the, the light reflects through it in a different way and you just see the beauty of it. And the Gospels are like that. So we, rest, we turn now to the Gospel of Mark in our text 
And we say, why does Mark include the story of Jesus' teaching and parables at this point in his narrative? Isn't something happening in the, in the prior chapters that helps us understand why he made this turn in teaching? And indeed there is. So here's my first point for this morning. We sow the word of God in times of opposition. Now, let me prove that point. The parables here in Mark are spoken by Jesus in the context of opposition. In Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus' ministry opposed by different groups. After Jesus healed a man uh, with a shriveled hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, Mark writes, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So that's a pretty negative response to a great miracle, don't you think? Now, the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians were not natural religious or political uh, allies. They had nothing to do with each other in their home context. But in Jesus, they found a common enemy, and they made common cause by combining their efforts to find a way to kill him. They won't be able to do that until they get the Pharisees and the leaders and the chief priests in Jerusalem to do it, but they finally get there in Mark. Uh, also in chapter uh, 3, 20 through 34, we see Jesus' family and the teachers of the law. Um, teachers of the law being the theologians of the day, uh, they oppose Jesus' ministry. Now, the more scandalous is that Jesus' family opposes Jesus' ministry. And we get this uh, in verse 2321, uh, that, that uh, Jesus' family came to take charge of him because they thought he'd lost his mind. He, he slipped his marbles somewhere along the way and lost them, and they had to take charge of him. That's a fine how you do. On the other hand, the teachers of the law from Jerusalem and so they sought to undermine his ministry by spreading lies saying he was in league with Satan and derived his power to cast out demons through the prince of, uh, prince of demons. And when you really stop and think and read this in light of what Mark's trying to display here, you, you begin to think, this is really sad. Uh, the two people who should have most celebrated the coming of Jesus the Messiah would be his family, should have been his family, and the Jewish leaders who have been waiting four or five hundred years for the Messiah to show up. And now they're trying to fig figure out a way to do him in. So, in chapter 4, Jesus begins to teach, and teach the people in parables. Why? Because there's opposition. And parables can obscure as much as they can enlighten. And if one is looking for evidence to accuse Jesus of rebellion against Rome, then the Roman Empire, it's going to be hard to gather that evidence from the parable. The matter is too open to varying interpretations. The parables serve to clarify the good news as well as to obscure it. It all depends on what, how one listens or hears the good news in the parables. In fact, that's one of the keys to understanding our passage today. The soils represent the different kinds of listeners of, uh, to Jesus' preaching and teaching and how they responded to him. Some have suggested that uh, uh, instead of summarizing this passage as the parable of the sower, uh, we should call it the parable of the soil because we have four different soils that we should have the same, uh, same sower with the same seed. So one of the key words in our passages is repeated several times. Of, uh, here in verse 9 it says, uh, to hear. Verse 9 says, 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, uh, physically we all have ears, unless, of course, we suffered some accident or some, some genetical problem at birth. But Jesus is not com- really commenting on something more, uh, not commenting on our physicality. He's commenting on something more profound. He's speaking about our disposition or one's disposition to listen, to consider what he says, and then obey what he says. So when you say, you know, this is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, the let him hear means take it to heart and do it. There's obedience there. He's calling them for obedience. And, of course, that's exactly what they're not getting from the Pharisees and the Herodians um, for why at least Jesus' family. They're not getting uh, obedience to his word. They're opposing him. And so that, that sets us up for this parable. Jesus' emphasis is this. In the light of the opposition to various parties, Jesus is speaking of our tendency or one's tendency to listen to his preaching and teaching without a corresponding uh, joyful obedience, doing what he asks us to do. Now, you know this verse, uh, and I'm assuming you're all biblically literate, but you know this verse in James, be doers of the word and not hearers only. You know, you know that word? Now, what is the verse, how did the verse end? Deceiving yourself. In other words, if you listen to God's word time and time again, and I know you come here, I'm not saying, I'm going to put myself in this category. We, Christians, have a tendency to come to church, listen to a sermon, and go, well, that was pretty good, and just don't do anything about it. There's no obedience, no heartfelt rendering myself to the Lord. I, I include myself in that. Because sometimes I don't listen. I listen, I hear the words. I have this illustration, I, you know, I, I said to my students often, I said, what God wants is, is disciples, not wine connoisseurs, wine testers, tasters, right? You know, you know that, that, that a, a wine tester, you take a little, got a little cup and this long chain around his neck, and he takes the cup, over the little wine, puts it in his mouth, pushes it around, and spits it out. And I, a lot of times, that's how we uh, uh, come to church. We kind of, <laughs> not good, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so, so when we don't, we listen to God's word, when we hear God's word and we don't obey, we deceive ourselves. You may even feel good that you heard God's word, but is there obedience that comes with it? About 10 years ago, uh, when we started to work in Cuba, uh, the providers of our curriculum, they're called Third, Mil- Third Millennium Ministries, the, the president, uh, Dr. John, uh, Doc, Dr. Richard Pratt, came uh, at my invitation to share and one morning, we, were had, we had all our leadership there. We were doing this workshop, and we had various speakers. Uh, one morning, uh, Dr. Pratt gave a, <coughs> a meditation, and, and it was based on James. And he asked this question, who's the greatest theologian in the world? You know, Dr. Pratt graduated from Harvard. He, he got all the, the goods with him. Who's the greatest theologian in the world? And a lot of people said, um, Augustine, or others say, you know, maybe Aquinas, or <coughs> uh, Calvin, who, you know, who knows. Uh, a number of people offered a number of answers. And this is Dr. Pratt's response. No, you're all wrong. The devil's the greatest theologian in the world. You know why? 
He knows everything about the world. And he's been even in the presence of God, and he doesn't obey. And then later in James it says, the, the demons know and tremble, but what they don't do is repent. They don't change their mind. There's no new form of behavior. So Dr. Trout finished this meditation with this, these words. So, if you want to become a devil, just learn theology and never obey God. And I think that applies to all of us to hear that. <coughs> and so, <coughs> it's this responding to God's word with joyful obedience. Now, let me say this one other thing. I, I, this isn't in my notes, but I, um, when we obey... Right, there's this kind of, I know we Christians kind of like, oh, I got to obey God. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. I'm so, I have to give up my selfishness. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, when we obey, it makes us happy because in doing God's will, we're really going with the grain of life that God has put in creation. We're not going against the grain all the time, which causes so much hurt and suffering in our life. To obey is a good thing. It leads to joy. It leads to maturity. And so we, we weigh that against our desires and our wants and, our, and, and whatever it is that the Lord might be putting his finger on in our lives and we, and we rebel against him. And then we suffer for it. Now, it's this responding and what, God, what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the sower is that, and the way I'm reading I'm outlining this is now we can understand the, these very difficult verses in, in chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. To you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You're thinking, I thought Jesus wanted everybody to hear and be forgiven. I mean, you, isn't, this, isn't this one of those verses you bump into and you go, I don't know what that means. And then you get, just get on to something else, you know. Praise the Lord, the next verse says something good, you know. Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Isaiah 6.10. And this is in the, in the call of I, uh, Isaiah. And he's basically telling the Isaiah, I'm, uh, you know, after Isaiah sees the, the Lord high and lifted up in the temple and the voice from the, the throne says, who will go for me? And Isaiah, here am I, send me. And then the Lord says to Mo, uh, you're going to go, I'm sending you to this, the lost house of Israel uh, and you're going to preach and you're going to preach and you're going to preach and they're not going to have any success. And this, this is where these, these verses uh, are found in Isaiah. They so Jesus is quoting Isaiah 6.10. And what we must understand that is in the context of Isaiah, Israel had for hundreds of years resisted the preaching of the prophets to turn from their idolatry and rebellion against God. Time and again, uh, the Lord had sent his prophets to preach to Israel. The, and the, the, they preached the need to turn away from their idols. And the prophets were largely ignored. Uh, and some were killed. The role of a prophet in the Old Testament was difficult because the people often want, tried to destroy the prophet for preaching God's word. And so, this word found in Isaiah is a word of judgment on their continuing sin. And the punishment fits the crime. The punishment fits the crime. The people of Israel would not give up their idols, so they became like their idols, who have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, uh, they, by worshiping dumb idols, they had become just like them. So, 
So the parables tell us the story that those who have ears to hear will understand, understand and respond, or should understand and respond. Uh, but those who resist God's word, uh, they do not have ears to hear, and they will continue in the rejection of God. And we see this in the Gospel of Mark and the Jewish leaders, uh, rejection of Jesus in their quest to destroy him. Now, one of the reasons that the Jewish leaders of Israel rejected Jesus is found historically in their expectation about their hope for the coming kingdom of God and, and how that would arrive in their midst. Um, when, when the Messiah came in their understanding, none would be able to resist the power and the authority of his word. Nobody. Or even more, more like Revelation chapter 1 and, and the last chapters where the, uh, the one crown with many crowns is seated on a white horse and, and, and proceeds in his mouth this sword, which is not literally a sword, it's a metaphor for the powerful, powerful work of the, the word of God. And it either, it either saves or, or destroys. Well, what they're looking for is this, this great warrior God who would come and destroy Israel's enemies, in this case, the empire of Rome, with its many legions of soldiers and political rulers. None would be able to resist the Messiah's powerful word. Yet we see in Jesus' ministry, people are resisting his word. Even though he begins by saying, basically, the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news. He's saying, the king's here, me, repent. And, of course, the Jewish leaders and theologians said, well, nobody could resist that word if this guy was really the Messiah. So how can this be the powerful inbreaking of the kingdom of God with the irresistible destruction of the enemies of God and its overflowing blessings for the people of God? We must take seriously, then, that just like Jesus, we will sow the good seed of the gospel in the context of opposition. We live in the time of cancel culture. For saying something considered politically incorrect, one can lose his job or, dis- or be socially ostracized in some manner. You can be docked and have a group of thugs show up your residence uh, and threaten your life and threaten life and limb. Cancel culture shows no mercy and it offers no forgiveness. So we have here this that uh, in all probability the opposition exists um, in our in our culture. Well, opposition does uh, uh, exist against the church in the days in which we are living. But we still need to respond with obedience to God's word. Well, and even even when even when we're having success in the in the church and great numbers might be coming in and we're, we're experiencing the blessing of God, there will be opposition. One of my first forays in the mission, I was working with a missionary team in Puebla, Mexico, and we were experiencing a great influx uh, of new believers. It was super exciting. And the ministry had purchased this large warehouse in a poor section of the town, and uh, it was, uh, and so I was part of a team that uh, was working to renovate the warehouse into a sanctuary, classrooms, kitchens, office spaces, all the things that church needs. And we did this while meetings were going on <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Every once in a while, we say, hey, could you stop crying for a while? Because you know, people have to hear. So it was kind of on and off again. So, but we were working and working. And there were mil- and, and here's, the, here's the catch. Uh, there were services going on at the church seven days a week from 9 in the morning to 9 at night. We had so many people coming. Now, not all the 
great numbers were usually in, in at night, but every every hour and a half we start a new service and there would be people there. So I was part of a, a, a team of missionaries and, and we also had a great team of uh, Mexican uh, workers uh, working on it that, that time. Um, after we worked many weeks without a break, uh, September 16 rolled around. Uh, that's when Mexico celebrates its independence from Spain and some of the brothers organized a picnic in a village in the mountains that surrounded Pueblo. Um, I, de I decided not to go because I, I, I was housed with a bunch, like 10 other guys in a big room in a dorm, and there wasn't much privacy, and I'm just really this introverted guy, and I charge my batteries by being alone. So I just said, uh, I'd rather stay here where I can read my Bible. And I was having a great time, as it turned out. Um, at the picnic, though, some, someone got out of the car and started to sing praise choruses, and that led to a spontaneous time of preaching the gospel in the main plaza of the village. I don't remember all the details, but some residents of the village objected to this group's eager sharing of the good news in a public setting. And so someone complained to the village priest, who then called together the townspeople by ringing the church bell and declared that those preaching in the main plaza had come to destroy the worship of the Virgin Guadalupe. And so some of the townspeople began to yell insults uh, at the brothers and sisters. They picked up stones. They chased them. One, we, the dude in this village was, was chosen because there was a brother who lived there. So this whole group of about 30 people crammed into this small house. And uh, for several hours, they were screaming, pelting. They broke windows. And, and finally, they had to call the riot police from Pueblo who came, broke up the, broke up the, the thing, and, and uh, brought the folks back. I was... I, I met them at the police station, and they were in these kind of riot, I won't say riot, but anyway, they were buses without any sides, they had seats, you know, and about two blocks before they got there, you could hear them singing. <laughs> they were singing praises to the God. They were real excited that they had done this, you know, so. But, and so, uh, you know, this is, this is one of those things. You, the, the, the advance of the gospel provokes the devil in, in spiritual warfare. That's what we read in the first, the story the seed is sown along the road and Satan comes and steals it. And, and you're in this, in, always in this spiritual battle with him. The good news of gospel is the astounding force that there's, there's opposition. Now when you read the book of Acts, just simple way thing to keep in mind, for every advance that the church makes in Acts, there's a, I, I won't call it an equal reaction, but there's, there's either opposition, external opposition, or there's internal uh, not fights, but they need to decide things because as the church grows and spreads outside of Jerusalem and Judea, there's what do we do with the Gentiles? But there's always this rhythm in Acts. The gospel expands, there's opposition. Well, a couple of days later, so going back to this little uh, story, I, I was talking to the, uh, the mission team leader who said to me, it was a good thing I hadn't gone on the picnic. He said, you could have been doomed by a rock and you probably would have gone back to the States to write a book about your experience and how much you suffered for Jesus, and you wouldn't be of any value to the mission in Pueblo. And look, yeah, yeah, that was, that was Danny Young, by the way. And, it was, uh, and so it's one of those things where you go, hey, now that I'm 69, he, he, really, had, he really understood what I probably would have done. <laughs> anyway, so that's the... the Sow the seed in opposition. Two, we, we sow abundantly the seed of the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I get this from Jesus' explanation of the different soils. Verse 14, the farmer sows the word. And unlike, <coughs> and unlike sowing that we do now in our modern times, uh, in our context, in, 
In the first century, the farmers sowed the seed before they plowed the field. Um, they would go out and cast abundant seed onto the ground, and then they would come along later and plow it into, in, into, the, into the earth, in the ground. So, of course, uh, when you do that, you don't see what's underneath the till, right? Um, so when we just do the opposite. We, we till, we, we plow and till and then plant and, and water. But in first century Palestine, farmers would cast seed uh, everywhere and then turn the soil. Then they would turn the soil. And I take from that that in, in sharing the gospel, we should be indiscriminate with whom we share the gospel, almost reckless, uh, profligate. You know, just give it out there. When I was uh, uh, in Bible school, we formed a Christian group, and <coughs> we were invited to go. I played guitar at the time, so we had, uh, I didn't sing, <laughs> but we had this, I played guitar. And so we went to this small town in Oregon called Alsu. We had been invited to do a concert on Saturday night, and the bass player said, Alsu is a really small town, I mean, it's just, and he said, why don't we, before the concert, why, we want to go out and invite people to come, and while we were doing that, and then the bass player said to me, let's, let's go over to the bar. Let's, let's share the gospel with the people going in there. Right? So we talked to this one guy, and, and uh, we shared briefly what the gospel was and invited him to the concert. He didn't come. But six months later, I was invited to come back to the church and, and preach and on a Sunday morning, and I was up there preaching, and I saw this guy in the congregation with his beanie sign. And I was going like, he looks familiar, but I don't get it, you know. Well, after church, he comes up and he says, you remember me? And I said, well, I, your face is familiar. He goes, I was the guy you talked to before going into the bar. And, and I was so impressed that you would do that, I, I started thinking about it, and I came here and heard the gospel and got saved. They just cast the seed. I didn't know. I mean, I wouldn't, uh, the, the blessing I had was uh, coming back and hearing what God had done. But that's the point. You don't know what God's doing. You sow the seed and, and, and you let God take care of it, so to speak. So, <coughs> so the fourth soil then here is what we, I want to talk to you. If I, if I, I titled this section of my sermon, uh, What is Your LQ? Uh, that is your listening quotient, not your IQ, your intelligent quotient, or your EQ, your emotional quotient. Uh, but what is your IQ? Jesus asked his, uh, LQ, thank you. Jesus <coughs> was asked by his disciples to explain what the parables of the soil meant, and so he describes four types. <coughs> In verse 15, the first one is, Some are like the seed along the path where the word is sown, and as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Now these types seem to be impervious to God's word, and it doesn't take root in their lives. Uh, Satan has stolen. I, I remember in high school, I witnessed to uh, a friend of mine, and I, I witnessed and witnessed and went on and said, and I, I figured, well, you know, this is good news. You're not taking it. And finally he said to me, uh, I, tried, I said to him, why, aren't you, why don't you become a Christian? He said, well, if I become a Christian, I can't do the things I want to do, like have sex out of marriage. And I thought, well, he heard the good news, and he's like the rocky soil here. Satan stole it. Now, maybe that seed's going to germinate. I haven't seen this guy in 50 years. I pray that God has brought him to faith. But uh, that often happens, too. We are, uh, here we have a, a dimension of spiritual warfare. 
two kingdoms are in deadly combat for the soul of, the king, uh, of men. And Satan sees that type represented in the story of the teachers of the law from Jerusalem, the Herodians and the chief priests. They're, they're very much like that. They hear the word and they just, it's stolen from their hands. Second, in verse 16 and 17, it's the, the, Jesus says, others are like seeds sown on rocky places. They hear the word and one thing receive it, and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. And when trouble and persecutions come because of the word, they quickly fall away. So underneath uh, what looks like good and plentiful soil, there's this stratum of, stratum of rock that doesn't allow the roots of the plant to sink deep into the soil. And when the good times of, uh, of joy are over, uh, and the time of tribulation or persecution arrives, the opposition comes, the plant shrivels. I'm sure many of you know persons who in the excitement of renewal displayed tremendous joy in knowing the Lord, but then soon faded away when their faith was tested by the slightest challenge. I think of uh, the Jesus movement in the 70s, which I was part of, how many uh, came to faith and were very excited about what the Lord had done in their lives, who are not serving the Lord today. And so... We don't, need, we don't need to reach far to, get, uh, to illustrate this point. Or we could just think of, the, in the Gospels, we could think of the, the crowds described here. They're like flares that glow with astonishment at Jesus' teaching and miracles, and they rejoice at his arrival in Jerusalem, but they do not have deeply rooted faith. And when suffering looms for on the horizon, they quickly fizzle out. Now, the third type of person is listener or those that are still others in verse 18 and 19 are like seeds sown among the thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come and choke the word and make you unfruitful. What often, what often stands in the way of our joyful uh, obedience to Jesus? Well, could it be uh, the, the deceitfulness of wealth? the worries of this life, the desires for other things that come in and choke out the word? Indeed, it can be. Think of Herod in the same gospel of Mark. We're going to read later in chapter 6 that Herod um, heard the word gladly of John the Baptist. Uh, but his greater concern in the end was to pres preserve his honor and power, and, it, and, uh, and uh, he extinguishes any chance he had that, he, that hearing the word would bear fruit in his life. Or, again, in the same gospel, in chapter 10, think of the young rich ruler. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Uh, eternal, uh, inherit eternal life. And basically, Jesus puts his finger on his idolatry, which is his wealth. And that's how everybody gets rid of your wealth. He's telling this guy specifically, this is your idol. Give it to the poor, come follow me, and then you'll have it. And, says that, Young, young rich ruler went away, and Jesus was sad. Or then think of Judas, who for the promise of wealth, uh, a few, few pieces of silver, sold Jesus out to the Jewish authorities. And again, just we need to stop and reflect. Think how in our own lives we are tempted to love wealth and ease above our call to discipleship of Jesus. Well, finally, Jesus says to us, he says, others are like the seed sown on good soil, and they hear the word, they accept it, they produce a crop. 
30, 60, or even 100-fold of what you're seeing. You want to be fruitful. You want to be fruitful in your Christian life? Hear the Word. Obey the Word. And you're good for it. And produce fruit. One writer put it this way, the good hearer welcomes the Word immediately so it cannot be snatched away by Satan. The good hearer welcomes it deeply so that it cannot be withered by persecution. And the good hearer welcomes it exclusively so that other concerns do not strangle it (coughs) and it produces fruit. So, let me just finish this morning by challenging you and myself to consider our LQ, our listening places. And I think what we need most than, more than anything else is just those moments of honesty where we say, Lord, you know. And I'm aware. I often read the Bible and I don't, I don't respond. I, you know, I, I hear a lot of sermons and I just criticize and I don't want to. Um, we need to become obedient and not fear the obedience, where obedience will take us. It'll be for the greater blessing. We'll bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. But if we don't, we won't bear that fruit for the kingdom and our lives will will show it. So, listen well. And our second point is to share the word in faith. You don't know what the outcomes are going to be. One last illustration. <coughs> when I was in high school and, uh, and the Lord got a hold of my heart, uh, I, my pastor, I was at a Baptist church and my pastor had worked with Campus Crusade for Christ. And we would go out on the street and share the gospel with the poor church that I it was great. This guy, you know, he had, the, he had all the techniques down. But anyway, um, and what he, he challenged me, he said, make a list of friends that go to high school with you and then pray for an opening to share the gospel with them. So I had a list of five or six people. And, uh, I, and, I, and I wrote the list out of friends I wanted to share the gospel with. And I, I, wrote, I, I started thinking, oh, well, Jim, that'll be easy. He's all my close friends. And this guy, yeah, that sounds great. And, I, and then I came to this guy, uh, I put this, fellow's name was Simon, James, and uh, James was kind of the weird one in high school, but I thought, I want to share the gospel with him. Well, you know what happened? The only one that responded to the teaching or the, the presentation of the gospel was James, the one I thought wouldn't receive it. Now, this is just, this, 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 sometimes we, we, we don't share the good news because we're afraid people will reject it. Well, that's probable, but we sometimes we share because we, we don't know, we're, we're kind of convinced that this person never going to change. And that's what the case with, with James in my thought. But he became a Christian, started going to church with me, grew in the faith. What a wonderful thing. So there's the challenge. How are you listening this morning and be willing to share lavishly the gospel wherever you go? Let's pray. Father, uh, we're so blessed to be able to look into your word this morning and, uh, and hear, uh, as it were, your voice in the text telling us to respond deeply and well to the things we read in the scripture and the sermons that we hear. Lord, keep our lives from being unfruitful, unsatisfying um, as disciples of the Lord. Let them be fruitful and joyful. Bearing much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go, I want to say there's a couple dates you need to remember. Put on your calendar August 27th.
after the second service. We will be having a church picnic out at Riverside Park, and uh, it's a potluck. We'll supply burgers, dogs, and I'm hoping for some salmon. Chinook season starting, and I've put some words into some people's heads. If you catch an extra one, bring it to the church, and God will help you catch another one. And so we'll count on that. But uh, and then this week, opportunities to be a ministry. We uh, w- Wednesday morning, ten o'clock Bible study. We'll be eating right over here. We started a new study, and it's a great study. And if you have open time in your mornings on Wednesdays, I encourage you to come and try it. It's uh, it's been a very rich time in the Word and, and digging into our hearts of what God wants to say to us. I trust you have a great week, and uh, we will say God bless you. Yeah, thank you.